Good morning, listeners. Welcome to Solidarity Breakfast on this wet morning. The expecting storms. So nice to stay home. Your host here is Alita Chalaya, taking you through to 9 a.m. We've got a interesting show today. We've got Arut Chelvin, who's the secretary of, or was a secretary of the Party Socialist Malaysia, uh, discussing the latest issues that have risen in Malaysia, where a um, activist was arrested for posting some Facebook uh, matters. Again, um, it's, it's just anything you say against a government is a crime. So that'll be a political interview with our children about the ins and outs of it and the political climate in Malaysia. The other normal... Um, Part of the program, Rank and File Radio with Marcus Harrington will be up after that. And of course, we have our satirist, Kevin Healy. I cannot say that word, Kevin Healy. And Francis Boyle, who's a um, internationally well known um, lawyer in um, world law, international law rather. Very reputable man who supports um, struggles by the oppressed nations. But he also has, um, interestingly enough, has built a little bit of reputation for himself in defending the Palestinians against the Israeli state. And he also has been um, a person who has argued for the Bosnians and, and, and has, has a governor case um, at The Hague. So we've got some heavy um, politics there. But anyway, I'll play that later in the morning. So let's start with our children. Welcome to 3CR, our children. Thank you so much for agreeing to talk to us. The um, arrest of Khalid Mohammed Ismath, a Malaysian student activist from the Socialist Party of Malaysia, has happened recently. Can you tell us what he was arrested for, please? Actually, Khalid was arrested for posting uh, some comments in the Facebook regarding an arrest of another person called Kamalisha. And uh, because of that, he was uh, detained, he was arrested, and then he was uh, charged under the Sedition Act as well as the Multimedia Act. He was in total charged for 14, uh, in total 14, 14 charges. charges against him. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, he's been now uh, denied bail for all the charges. Yeah. One of those charges include insulting the Malaysian king, Johor Sultan, uh, the Johor State Royalty. Is that correct? You see, none of his posting did he ever mention the name of the Johor Sultan. Hmm. But it looks, but but if you look at the sedition charge, what they have mentioned is that he has made sedition comment against the Johor Royalty, and this is something need to go through the legal course, into the court case itself. And it is an offence under the Sedition Act. It is an offence, yeah. Is it similar to the Lesser Majesty Law in Thailand? It is something similar, yes. Something yeah. similar to the Lesser Majesty Law in Thailand, yeah. Okay. So I guess the arrest of Khalid obviously doesn't um, occur in a vacuum. So this young man has written something on Facebook. Um, it obviously offended the authorities. So maybe we should talk a little bit about... Um, the crackdown on the media in Malaysia, is it specific to the PSM or the Party Socialists of Malaysia? Or is it a general crackdown on the media? 
You see, currently the Prime Minister is facing his worst political crisis, uh, mainly due to his investment on this one NDB, which is an uh, investment of the government, where they, there's been massive uh, allegation of corruption and misuse of power in handling this fund. So a lot of people uh, have come, come against the Prime Minister, including his own uh, party members. So uh, Najib, in order to consolidate power, has actually sacked his deputy, the deputy prime minister. He has also uh, removed those who are critical against him. He has changed the AG, the attorney general, and he has made a number of series of arrests under the Sedition Act. Which are? He has made arrests against Khairuddin, he has made against Michael Chen. These are a close aide of uh, Dr. Mahade. And also opposition leader, the latest was uh, Sivarasa who was uh, uh, charged recently for another sedition offence. And so a lot of people have been lately, some have been charged, some have been probed, haven't been charged. Like I myself have been probed, haven't been charged. The, the famous Katuni Zuna was charged with nine uh, nine charges under the Sedition Act for his, for his uh, comics, for example. Yeah, so the general political situation isn't conducive for debate. No, I think a lot of reforms which Najib himself brought up when he, when he first uh, became the Prime Minister, including abolishing the ISA and then abolishing, he wanted to abolish the Sedition Act, has now gone against all his words. So now he's been using the Sedition Act and then they have now recently used SOSMA, which is a new act to replace the ISA. Initially, SOSMA was uh, said to be, would be only be used against those waging a terrorist war. And uh, they were assured that uh, Malaysians who, who were fighting against their own government would not be used this act, like how they used to use the ISA before this. But all this is false now, because Sosma has been used against uh, those who are in defense with the, with the Prime Minister and so the ruling party. There's elections coming up soon. So do you think this is a build-up towards that? See, elections is not due until 2018, actually. But then, after... May 2016, you can call for an election. So there is some uh, views that an election will be called early. One is to consolidate uh, Najib's, because the opposition are in totally disarray at this moment. So one would be to call an early election, to also to allow Najib to finish off his, his political enemies within the, within the party. So he wants to firm his grasp on power while he can, obviously. Now, to do to, to that, he's also brought down a budget that is seen as a populist budget. He's announced a higher minimum wage from July next year, and the top 1% of taxpayers will pay higher levies on income. It seems like he's offering a budget that will resonate with his main supporters who are poorer and rural-based Malays. And at the same time, interestingly enough, he's uh, removed... Uh, concessions to utility fees and things like and, and some medicine, I think. I'm just wondering what this, what do you see as the political strategy of this uh, prime minister? You see, nobody in in Malaysia is taking his budget quite, quite seriously actually, because the day to day, the prices of basic goods have raised very high. The Malaysian ringgit has dropped uh, unprecedented to very low. So a lot of goods which people are buying nowadays, if they import goods, the prices have gone up very high. So a lot of things which you said in the budget actually doesn't really materialize us. And also uh, the increase of RM100 uh, of minimum wage is actually very extremely low. 
compared to the hardship which is faced because of the GST. And uh, what what Najib has not said in the budget, but which which is that he has also taken away subsidies of very important things like electricity, uh, for example. He has taken away subsidies of uh, transport for toll payment. So this is going to increase the and cooking oil, for example, it removes both subsidies. So it is going to impact a lot more than the hundred ringgit people are going to get additionally, you know, from the from the minimum wage. So it's a, it's a tough situation for people because they are going to suffer regardless of what he is promoting as a budget for the people. The, the, some of the analysts say that it's a um, budget with an eye on the middle class, uh, but even they, uh, the, the upper crust of the middle class, are going to have to pay a larger tax. I think it's increasing by 1%, isn't it? You see, since the budget was introduced uh, just a few days ago, and they have been holding a number of workshops around the country, the feedback we get is people are not really uh, excited with the budget which, which Najib is proposing. Because, for one, he doesn't have... Uh, you see, a lot of people are very frustrated with the introduction of the GST, and they have made uh, what 37 billion from the GST, but that money has not been put back to the people. So what the people are actually getting is very little to the money which robbed away from them. And uh, after a lot of protests, they finally increased the uh, corporate tax to one percent. You see, last year budget they reduced the corporate tax to one percent, and we made a lot of noise. And, you know, and this year they have brought it back 1% up. So actually we, we would call for a bigger, larger amount of corporate tax to be slashed. Of course. Because at one time, Malaysia, Malaysia had about, had a corporate tax of about 40%. Now it's only 26%. It's a massive drop, isn't it? Yes. So what, what is happening with the opposition that it's, um, in disarray? See, the opposition, the, the Pakatan riot, which was there for since 2008, has been dismantled because of the question of the Islamic uh, Hudud law. And uh, so there's a big problem between uh, PAS and the Islamic Party, PAS and the DAP, uh, the, the mm. Democratic Action Party. Mm. These are two of the three main opposition parties. So today they have abandoned it. And the Islamic party is split into another party called Amana. So, so now we have four parties, including Amana, PAS, DAP, and Anwar Ibrahim's party, Party And they can't form a coalition yet. There's a lot of fighting and fighting between them. And because of that, uh, the, the opposition are quite weak at this point of time. And maybe we should visit um, the role of Mahathir Mohammad because he's been attacking Najib Razak for a while now. Uh, what role is, is he playing and what is his intent? You see, Mahathir is actually basically accusing Najib of all the things which he needs to do before. You know? So it's quite yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, interesting because yes. you know whatever Najib is doing today is all, everything who could have got it from the textbook of Mahadev himself. That's right, that's right. You know, on using of the Sosma and, you know, arresting people, going for the media, going, attacking the judiciary, AG, you know, everything is from Mahadev books. And of course, because of the weak opposition, a lot of people felt that under Mahadev, the economy was good, business was good. So a lot of people also do support Mahadev because they feel that, you know, he, he brings his good 
he, he brings back the, the business classes will be happy with Mahadev's protest against Mahadev. Because they're not very much worried about, you know, human rights abuses as long as business works when everything is okay. Of course. And because of that, Mahade seems to be getting support from uh, the middle classes, uh, uh, quite a large segment of the population, quite quite frustrated. And they feel that only Mahade seems to be really brave enough to take on Najib, you know. What is he proposing, though? Does he have a candidate who will stand against Najib Razak in the elections? So basically, uh, Mahade is saying that we should remove Najib so that Amno can continue to rule. And, and I think he's talking about, uh, of course, his, his uh, Muhyiddin Yassin at this point of time. Before this, this was the fact that the Prime Minister. But I think this will also give opportunity to rise of his own uh, children, you know, his son, mm. who is the chief minister of one of the states. Mm-hmm. I think they will be all uh, wiped out by Najib if, if this, this crisis continues. So it is a power struggle, and uh, Mahade is the opposition of this power struggle, and he's ensuring some of his friends in Amno come to power. If you have just tuned in, you're listening to Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR 855 on your AM dial. Of course, streaming live on the web. We are interviewing Art Chelvin, who is uh, a member of the Party Socialist Malaysia and an ex-secretary of the party. It's an interesting situation because in the 2008 elections, for the first time, there was uh, the Malay working class voting against Barisan National. And from that time, the votes for Barisan National has been shrinking. And the last elections was the first time the Barisan National lost its popular vote. Now, so that, that is a reflection of the, the Malay working class sliding away from the traditional Malay parties. Where are these people putting their allegiance at this stage if they are turning away from Barisan National and Amno? Uh, PAS is only dominant in Klantan and probably Trungano. But what's happening with the other states? You see, uh, if you look at the last two elections, Barisan uh, National lost the two-third majority in both the elections. But then, compared to 2008 and 2013, in the year 2013, Actually, um, the Barisan National mean to get back some of the Malay uh, support, which they lost in 2008. So this is because, if you look at in the year 2013, a lot of uh, Malay support in Kedah and East Malaysia actually went back to the Barisan National compared to others, uh, other states. So I think, so it is not true to say that the Malay votes have actually abandoned Barisan National. And that is why I think the Islamic Party passed is trying to come up alternatives. They're trying to push the Malay Islamic agenda further, actually, to support of the rural Malays, for example. But they also believe the Sharia law, which is not very popular on the east coast of Malaysia. Yes, 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 true. Because I think, I think you see, the, what, the, what the issue which PSN has tried to raise up a number of times is that the opposition has also failed to address the rural Malay poverty issue. And there is a real fear within the rural Malays that without AMNO, there's no other parties which will safeguard their interests. They're very worried about opposition to coming to power because they feel that the, 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 the Malays will not get uh, benefits out of the opposition. They have special privileges um, under the current government, which has been there since the right, 70s, which actually Mahathir introduced that privileged position. No, no, you see, the special privileges 
what if if what 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 ends up is the special privileges the money goes back to the rich Malays. it doesn't go trickle down to the poorer Malays. so actually what what we are proposing is that if there's a class based policy across race the Malay community the poorer segment of the Malay community will actually benefit from it what has happened in the in the in the last uh, 30 30 years is that the the wealth has been actually moved to the higher income uh, corporate Malay sector, a, a very small layer to a cronies of uh, Mahathir Mohamad, but not to the common Malays. And is that the case under Najib Razak as well? You see, uh, Najib blamed the uh, racial cut quite strongly in the last few months, and I think that is to get support from the Malays. I think he's not really bothered much anymore with the Chinese support, and uh, you know because and, and it looks like he has already completely given up hope to get the Chinese support. He's trying to get a lot of votes. He's empowered today because of Malay support as well as votes from Sabah and Sarawak. That is why this current budget is, is called the budget to help him win the Sarawak election more than, you know, for the rest of the country. So it is, it is if he's just would try to consolidate his power in uh, East Malaysia, Sabah and Sarawak, and trying to get support within the uh, Malays in the country. Mm. And and the Malay, uh, the reflection of uh, Malays who are dissatisfied with the system, obviously are turning to PSM for activities and for support. Would that be right? Right. Actually, the if you look at the last election, the Malay support went back a bit to be, and that is a bit worrying, because last last election the opposition did better is simply because the voter turnout was very high. A lot of Malaysian who are, who live in overseas came back to Malaysia just to vote. But if this trend continues, because people are quite frustrated even with the opposition, I think the voter turn turnout will be low in the coming election. Hmm. So yes. we have a very funny situation because you know Najib is at his weakest, and so is the opposition at the same time. Hmm. So this gives the left an opportunity, don't you think? An opportunity to guard and campaign against both of them. Yeah, I think so, and I think. Uh, but it's, you know, this this is the why it's very important to get you know a lot of people interested back in politics because people are a bit fed up with politics mm. after you know putting a lot of things in the last two elections. But there are a lot of opportunities out there, you know, to because the frustration is out there. It's just that people are looking for a real, uh, strong opposition to take on the Parliament, and and PSM is also working with other groups to see whether we could come up with a strong um, force to fight what is happening in the country today. Mm. Part of this, um, I guess, crackdown against criticism um, has obviously resulted in Khalid being arrested. Now, I believe Amnesty International is taking it, taking it up at international level. Is that right? It is coming for a revision on uh, coming Thursday, mm-hmm. where uh, we have lined up a full team of lawyers to represent him. Because this is the first time a bail, you know, for, for sedition charges, bail is normally granted. But on this guy, Khalid is not, uh, is not granted him bail. And, and did they give a reason for it? No, no, they've not given any reason. They, I mean, the person, the only reason they gave is that he might, he might leave the country and go overseas and continue to attack. Another reason they gave, he'll continue to, you, if you allow this person outside, they'll continue to use the Facebook to, criticize the government and the royalty, which is actually quite funny because you know uh, he's not even been he's not even been found guilty currently. He has to be given the right to be heard. 
she should be presumed innocent until proven guilty. So, I guess we'll hear from you guys in relation to supporting his case um, at international level because of the um, involvement of Amnesty International. Um, is there a petition or is there a campaign taking any other form? If it has not been released by Thursday, Thursday is the day for revision. Mm-hmm. Then PSM will embark on a bigger campaign to get him released because then you have to make an appeal, another appeal to the appeals court, and then we have to do a larger campaign. So what about an international campaign to get his uh, to secure his release? Okay, so we'll wait for that campaign to 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 take off so that people in Australia who wish to express solidarity with that um, fight back will be able to participate in your campaign uh, and also help the political situation in, in Malaysia, generally speaking. So we should look forward to talking to you again, Arul, when um, obviously things are heating up, heading towards a possible election next year. So it'll be interesting to follow the direction in which the whole, this whole process is uh, heading in. Okay, thank you. Okay, bye. bye. That was Arut Chelvin. <clears throat> Excuse me, from the Party Socialist Malaysia. He was giving us a roundup of what's happened recently with the arrest and crackdown on people who say anything against the government in Malaysia, especially after the huge corruption scandal that broke out where millions of dollars were transferred to the Prime Minister and his wife's accounts from various sources. Now we will go to um, Marcus Harrington, member of the NUW, and he is presenting Rank and File Radio. Here we go. On today's edition of Rank and File Radio, we will shine a light on the exploitation that exists in the thoroughbred racing industry. This time of year is one where the industry is front and centre, yet those workers that prepare the racehorses for high-profile trainers and rich and powerful owners, the strappers and stable hands, are largely the forgotten heroes of the spring the exploitation in the sport of kings is the subject on today's edition of Rank and File Radio. I'm the presenter of the program, Marcus Harrington. Toiling away unrecognised and by the nature of the thoroughbred racing industry, often in unsafe workplaces, Australia's strappers and stable hands work in an environment far removed from the bright lights of Victoria's spring racing carnival, spring racing carnival and the glamorous events that go with it, such as the Emirates Melbourne Cup. John Paul Blanthorne, the former organiser with the Australian Workers' Union, who represent the stable hand, stated, we would say this is just about one of the most dangerous workplaces, with the main issue being the unpredictable nature of a racehorse. The death of German track rider Frederick Ruhl at Caulfield on Wednesday, July 1st, 2015, was the latest fatality of a stable hand to rock the racing industry. In January, another visiting rider, Liz Rice, died at Caulfield in a mysterious track incident. At Caulfield, the Fair Work Ombudsman, through the Horse Racing Industry Audit Program, a report handed down earlier this year found exploitation of stable hands, particularly in Victoria, was rife. The Ombudsman reported that 86% of trainers audited in New South Wales had complied with their obligations under the federal award, yet only 31% of Victorian stables investigated were compliant. Ten trainers in Victoria, through the Fair Work Report, were found to have underpaid 47 stable hands, a total of $19,414. Twelve stable hands in the Wimmera region were backpaid more than $5,000 for being underpaid, the minimum hourly rate of $21, and not receiving overtime payments. With just 36 Victorian racing stables targeted, 
the magnitude of the levels of exploitation would be far greater given the non-compliance rate of the few stables investigated. In Australia, the industry dubbed the sport of kings thoroughbred racing contributes $5 billion annually to the national economy while contributing $2.1 billion to the Victorian economy yearly. The nation's exploited strappers and stable hands work for a wage of just $21 an hour, with most having just one day off work every fortnight. In the sport of kings, the loyal servants working away before dawn at their bosses' stabling facilities, the racecourses around the country saddling horses and shoveling manure, while the Leviathan racehorse owners are preparing for another round of golf at Royal Melbourne. The workers return to the stable for a split shift in the afternoon as the same owners sip their Chardonnay in exclusive clubs such as the Victoria Racing Club. Legendary Sydney racing journalist Max Presnell highlighted the world the strappers live in. He said, In the millions of words written in the industry by Turf Monthly from 1955 to 1998, they received only one feature, Strappers Union. In 1960, perhaps it was because of them being the last link on the racing food chain and with a more hands-on association with horse manure. But they have a history for being underpaid and not appreciated. The Australian Racing Hall of Fame contains multiple millionaire owners and breeders amongst its ranks. Five journalists are included as Hall of Fame inductees, while just one stable hand, Tommy Woodcock, strapper of the famed thoroughbred Farlap, has been afforded such recognition. And the guest on today's edition of Rank and File Radio to discuss uh, exploitation of workers in the thoroughbred racing industry is the Victorian Secretary of the Australian Workers' Union, uh, Ben Davis. Welcome to the program, Ben. Thank you, Marcus. And uh, currently Victoria is in the midst of a colourful spring racing carnival, yet underneath the glitz and glamour lies another world, the life and times of racing's uh, strappers and stable hands. Uh, yeah, that's right. Uh an, an industry that has its fair share of problems, to say the least. Um, strappers and stable hands are amongst the lowest paid workers in the country. They routinely get treated badly. I think they get exploited on the basis of the fact that they love the horses. Um, and, you know, it really is an industry that, um, that could do with a lot of improvement. And it would be fair to say that the strappers and stable hands are unrecognised and undervalued and uh, not afforded near enough credit. Of course they are. I mean, obviously the jockeys get the credit that they're due, um, but the people that care for the horses, the people that look after the horses, the people that make sure the horses are in tip-top condition for the races are largely ignored. And the thoroughbred racing industry uh, contributes $5 billion annually to uh, Australia's economy. Um, are the stable hands are the vital cog in any racing stable, uh, receiving their fair share of the wealth they play the crucial role in, in producing? Yeah, well, they're a critical part of it. If if uh, if a strapper isn't up to it, or, or the horse isn't being looked after well by the strapper or stable hand, then it's not going to be in tip-top shape for the race. They play uh, a vital role in the racing industry, and in an industry that employs so many hundreds and thousands of people and generates so much income and economic activity. As was the findings of a recent report, uh, exploitation is rife in the sport of kings, as you've already alluded to. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we obviously see a lot of cash-in-hand arrangements. Um, it's odd hours, given the nature of the industry. We often see either overtime that's not being paid or being paid uh, at a lot lower rate than it should. We see superannuation not being up to it. It is a real problem industry. And there was a Fair Work um, Ombudsman's report. Um, what recommendations were handed down as a result of this? 
Oh, well, I mean, there's been a number of Fair Work Ombudsman reports, Fair Work Commission proceedings. Um, this is an industry in which people are scared to speak out, in large part because of the nature of, you know, they love the horses, they love the industry, they get caught up in the mystique and the glamour of it all. Um, and they're scared. It's often precarious employment uh, because it's such a, an industry in which everyone knows everyone else. They know that if they have a fallout with one trainer, they might struggle to get work with another. Um, so they're very reluctant to stick their heads up. Um, we've seen lots of incidents of sexual harassment as well over the years. Um, there are no end of problems in this industry. They're just not getting their fair share of the cake. Um, and is the industry riddled uh, with the casualisation crisis? And it's a crisis which sees more than 40% of Australian workers placed in this insecure form of employment. Yeah, there is a high degree of casualisation and, and as anybody knows, people who are casuals are less likely to want to stick their heads up and, and complain about their lot. Um, but even the full-time permanent workforce, even people who see it as a career as distinct from a job on the way to somewhere else, even they get exploited more often than they should. And the, uh, your union, the AWU, obviously playing an active role in, in trying to rectify some of the problems in the thoroughbred racing industry and, and the problems the workers face. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, we've never stopped trying to clean the industry up. We try and talk to strappers all the time. We try and, and stable hands, try to get them organised, try to make them aware of what their entitlements are, what they can reasonably expect in the workplace. It's very hard graft, very difficult industry, but we keep persevering because that's what we do. Uh, you mentioned it's a difficult uh, industry, difficult um, industry to organise. Uh, probably unions probably aren't uh, well received, I suppose, in the industry. Well, with track workers and people who are employed by racecourses and the you know, Victorian Racing Club and the like, I think there's a reasonable presence of the union and acceptance of it, but it's a lot harder, you know, a couple of degrees harder with stables and stra uh, stable hands and strappers. They're just a group who um, aren't used to being union members. They don't tend to come from other industries that are well unionised. For a young workforce, uh, overwhelmingly female as well, uh, and highly casualised, which means that it is very difficult to, to get in and get traction and, and make people aware of what they're entitled to. Uh, a prominent uh, Sydney stable was recently found to be in breach of engaging uh, 457 guest uh, visa holders. Uh, is this the practice of the exploitation of these vulnerable uh, workers a concern for the union? Yeah, the foreign labour piece caught me by surprise, to be honest, because I didn't realise that 457s were, as, were becoming as common in the industry as they are. That obviously makes it more difficult again. Um, there is no reason why they can't find locals to do that sort of job. There are no shortage of people that want to work in the industry despite its precarious nature of the employment. Um, so to utilise foreign labour, I think, is a nonsense. And the strappers and stable hands are placed in dangerous workplaces are given the unpredictable nature of the thoroughbred. How does the incident and injury rate compare to other in industries? Oh, the work cover rate and the injury rate in racing is terrible. I mean, you're talking about people who are dealing with animals that weigh anywhere up to 500 kilos. Uh, and there is only so much control you can exercise on a living beast that, you know, that is that big and that heavy. Um, and look, a lot of the strappers I've met are struggling to be 70 kilos soaking wet, so by its nature it's a hazardous industry. And recently a monument listing the names of 873 jockeys that have been killed on the job was unveiled at the Caulfield Racecourse, yet the memorial does not honour the hundreds more uh, strappers and stable hands that have lost their lives in the line of duty, again relegating these workers as uh, second-class citizens to their jockey comrades. Yeah, there's certainly been a lot more jockeys killed in the industry uh, than strappers and stable hands, but the injury rate amongst, and the serious injury rate amongst strappers and stable hands is terrible. And with the AWU organising these workers now, uh, would you envisage some form of industrial action on a wide scale being taken in the future by this exploited 
section of racing's workforce? No, I think, I think to be honest, that's unlikely. These are a group of people who um, get into jobs and even though they do often get ripped off, they just want to stay in those jobs. Um, there's a real educational piece. We've employed strappers before as officials to try and, you know, do a bit of like-on-like um, unionising. Um, it's just a very difficult industry. OK, and this Tuesday, of course, is the Melbourne Cup Day, and as uh, workers, we have the day off work to celebrate the, the race that stops the nation, a public holiday, of course, fought and won by the union movement. Yet there'll be no, no holiday for the many strappers around the nation as they toil away again in the early hours of the morning. Yeah, and, and late into the night, and the challenge is to make sure that they're paid correctly because it is a public holiday, and that they're treated properly as well. OK, uh, thanks for joining me on Rank and File Radio today, Ben, to discuss the exploitation in the thoroughbred racing industry. Thank you, Marcus. And that was Ben Davis from the Australian Workers' Union uh, discussing exploitation in the sport of Kingsley exploitation that takes place in the thoroughbred racing industry of the strappers and stable hands. You're listening to Rank and File Radio on Community Radio 3CR 855 on the AM dial, and I've been the presenter of the program, Marcus Harrington. You can listen to Rank and File Radio in the Solidarity Breakfast time slot on Community Radio 3CR every Saturday morning from 8am. If you'd like to come on to Rank and File Radio to discuss your dispute or campaign, you can drop a line at rankandfileradio 3 cr at gmail.com or you can find us on Facebook on the Rank and File Radio page. Thank you, Marcus. That was Rank and File Radio. We're going to uh, listen to Uncle Kevin Healy. A weak solidarity bricky team lister when that repository of commie propaganda, Amnesty International, levelled the international bit at poor true blue Aussie, claiming we were people smugglers ourselves, paying people smugglers to take all these illegal, no proper papers, queue-jumping boat people back to Indonesia in other people's business. And some other goody-goody claimed that bit was an abuse of Indonesia in sovereignty and the commie propaganda mob called for a Her Most Gracious Majesty's Royal Con mission into the allegations. But but hang on, there, there's no obvious evil union or socialist party identities involved, is there? So, so there's no need for a Kanga mission. But that giant mind, the Minister for Concentration Camps, Razor Wire and Sink the Boats, Peter Duffer, really put Amnesty International in its place. These people... The machinery of his great mind ground into action have an ideological opposition to what we are doing. There, that smashed their argument. We can but imagine the horror in government circles of anyone bringing ideology into politics. Although it could become a standard defence. It's my contention, Your Honour, that you have an ideological opposition to armed robbery and murder. On the non-ideologue practitioners of our concentration camps razor wire and sink the boats policy, a man in formal evening dress, black bow tie, talking to a formal evening dress crowd, honouring the world economic damage perpetrated by former Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country, Big Supremo, Maggie Thatchtair. Given how Maggie and her world economic damage co-conspirator Ronnie Reagan both ended up, the way they ended up pre-dead, which they also ended up, of course, maybe long-term dementia might explain a lot. 
Anyway, honouring and all these elite beneficiaries of the economic damage in their formal evening wear, warned by a failed troublewazzy Big Supremo that establishment civilization could only survive if it treats the wretched of the earth wretchedly. Thousands and thousands fleeing for no other reason, the trained killer initiated by the trained killing initiated by the people in the room, than to take cruel advantage of the people in the room, their goodness, their compassion. Justice tempered by mercy is an exacting ideal, an exacting ideal. Tiny a bit more for the bosses told them. We solve that with a big dose of injustice tampered with cruelty tampered with cruelty tampered the chairperson looked quizzically tamper it's a true blue aussie in joke an example of my scintillating wit my scintillating wit related to the maggie thatchtear celebrants we talked last week how the rich know how to run a company explaining why the minister for banking the banks josh Friedem workers Berg exploded righteously that all that lovely, lovely superannuation money must be wrenched from the inefficient hands of evil union bosses whose funds make more profit than bank and financial institution run funds, charge lower fees and make profits for their members, while the super efficient banks and financial institutions run sensible funds making less money for the ingrate workers, charging higher fees and making profits for themselves and their shareholders. Thanks to all that lovely workers' money. Well, no longer workers' lovely, lovely money once the banks get their hands on it. Now, the totally independent government regulator has attacked the union industry funds for peddling fallacies. Authority member Helen Rowell showed her independence. Why, some bank funds were almost as good as union-run funds, she declared. Many make comparable profits. Uh, that means the evil union management is still better, or even if for the sake of argument it's comparable, uh, Helen, uh, why change? We can't leave these vital national matters in the hands of amateurs. We're, we're not comparing apples with apples. These evil union amateurs circumvent, illegally I would say, circumvent the responsibility to make profit for themselves. The money they make for their lazy, avaricious workers is stolen, a strong word, but stolen from the pockets of the bank shareholders, the great international financial institution shareholders. Real business must make profit for itself. Workers' money is not the business of workers. Yes, let's not let evil workers stand between the banks and a pile of money, of lovely, lovely money. Helen has come under attack from even people who might support her argument for breaking a basic economic rule when drawing these sorts of conclusions, choosing a small sample that suits your argument. But I repeat, she is impeccably independent. So independent, the government used her to brief cross-bed senators to back the government stand that evil unions have no right to get near evil workers' lovely, lovely money. On which a bit of justice at last. Great international corporate X Long New, which last year made more profit than any company in history, true, and which Long knew climate change caused by its product was real, but long, long denied what it knew. Well, finally in the US of, there's been an arrest over the scandal. Yep, a protester blocked one pump at an X Long New gas station, and who would have guessed 
got arrested for arresting poor ex-long news prophets. What an evil person. Imagine how the responsible men in the ex-long news boardroom must have felt. Film emerged this week of a Palestinian, well, stateless, nameless worker in his stateless, nameless non-state going to the doorway to see what the commotion was, which was peace-loving, heavily-armed, Zion-trained killers bashing the proverbial out of stateless, nameless locals going about their business, which they had no business to go about. And when they saw him, they decided he had no business to put his head out the door. The video from inside the workplace and how were the poor, innocent, heavily armed train killers to know they were being filmed showed the nosy worker paying the price of his nosiness, bashed the proverbial out of, kicked and punched and pushed and laid into and battered and assaulted by all these peace-loving trained killers. Upon which the... I would think the illegal release of the film, right up there with the worst anti-liberty, freedom and democracy crimes of Assange and Snowden, the Zion-trained killer establishment said the actions were inappropriate with what is expected of a Zion Defence Force trained killer. For Yahweh's sake, this nameless, stateless, nosy interloper who had no right to watch our peace-loving trained killers going about their business which is, after all, train killing, was, was not train killed. He is still alive, just, but, and more inappropriate, our train killers failed to confiscate the film. Uh, so this inappropriate episode caught on film would be the only occasion when Zion train killers have acted inappropriately? Certainly, absolutely, you have the word of the Zion Defense Force establishment, unless another film turns up. Simultaneous to reports that that octogenarian debauchee Lord Rupert of Wapping was in a deep and meaningful relationship with famous for being famous Jerry Hall, news very limited auditors were questioning the seemingly excessive expense account for an item simply listed as V, whatever that means. And while on the subject, perhaps that explains why ubiquitous social page convicted crook Geoffrey Pedalstains can't seem to honour a number of debts think he'd have a different attitude to anyone owing him. Well, we know he was convicted for hiring a hitman. He's probably gone broke buying Viagra and black hair dye. No, no, the latter's a bit cruel. His hair looks so natural. As natural as, say, nuclear energy, nuclear enrichment, nuclear ostrich. Oh, sorry, nuclear burying your head in the radioactive sand. Natural nature hanging around for a, a couple of hundred thousand years. Yes, those who know tell us we need a mature conversation about turning all that lovely, lovely uranium into lovely, lovely profit, showing those Luddites who oppose uranium and nuclear development are immature, don't understand. Hang on, breaking news. There's a move to fog off the sun and wind and sea to General Electric Profits and Worstinghouse. Upon reflection, it does seem there is a lot of sun and wind, and if the problem of people stealing these resources without meeting their responsibilities to meet the costs can now be overcome, oh, oh, good news. Finally, getting back to responsible boardrooms, and please, listener, don't suggest that's an oxymoron. Remember that protracted picket line at the Don't Buy Yard at Chicken Factory? It features on one of our 3CR promos. Don't buy yard a later sprung as well for claiming free range, which wasn't quite free. Well, this week, 
don't buy Yada was ordered to pay half a million dollars, true figure, toward underpaid working holiday visa workers, underpaid a massively generous $11.50 an hour for up to 19 hours a day work, while also having $100 of that underpay extracted for compulsorily living in, quote, overcrowded, unsafe accommodation. Don't buy Yarda refuse the not-so-fair work ombudsman access to its work sites. Wonder why, but more importantly, the culprit it explained was contractors. Poor Don't Buy Yarda had no idea this was going on. We're an equal opportunity employer, it boasted. We treat workers and chickens as equals. Good morning, Uncle Kevin. Thank you so much for that. It's a pleasure for me to introduce the next guest, Francis Boyle, or Professor um, Francis Boyle from Chicago, who is a um, international. Uh, he, he's a he's a, prof, a professor and a lawyer uh, in international law. He's appeared for Bosnia and Herzegovina and against the state of Yugoslavia, and he has also helped the Palestinians um, with their struggle. In this interview, he is talking about the Sri Lankan um, issue and his take on on the uh, report and the resolution that was um, passed. Uh, the resolution was put forward by the U.S., of course, and supported by other allies of the U.S., including our, unfortunately, racist country. Uh, welcome to 3CR, uh, Professor Boyle. Thank you so much for sparing some time to talk to us. Sure. Happy to uh, speak to your audience. Thanks. Let's go straight to the point. What is your opinion on the report tabled by the UNHRC on Sri Lanka? I thought the uh, report was uh, pretty good, except, uh, as you know, uh, the High Commissioner refused to use the word uh, genocide Uh, even though if you go through the report carefully, uh, it's clear he could have reached a conclusion of genocide, but he uh, refused. I also believe uh, his predecessor, uh, Navi Pillay, uh, also refused to use the word genocide while the uh, uh, Vani massacre was uh, uh, going on. And uh, in the uh, other two UN reports, the... uh, UN experts uh, report, and then the uh, uh, UN internal report, they also refuse to use the word genocide. And the reason is because if they used it, uh, it raised the question, well, why didn't the United Nations uh, act immediately and effectively to stop it? But uh, other than that, I I thought it was a good report, and uh, we could certainly use it to uh, uh, press war crimes charges and charges of crimes against humanity uh, against the uh, entire uh, Sinhala leadership, who uh, the uh, high commissioner uh, most conveniently uh, mentioned by name. As for uh, uh, genocide charges, uh, we'll have to do more work on that because they they didn't really uh, pull together uh, the types of evidence we need to uh, prove that in court. But I, I think we can do that. Next question. What do you think of the resolution put forward by the USA? 
it's a total uh, disgrace. It, it really is. And indeed, yesterday, the uh, State Department put out a uh, press statement uh, claiming uh, credit for it, boasting about it, uh, how proud they were, were of it. It, it. It's a shocking, shameless resolution, including uh, praising the uh, uh, Sinhala military forces for their honorable service committing genocide against about 146,000 uh, uh, Tamils. Uh, but as I've said uh, in my other comments, basically uh, 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 rendering themselves accessories after the fact to the uh, Sinhala genocide war crimes and crimes against humanity, against the Elam Tamils. And uh, if you read the Genocide Convention, it, to which the United States is a party, uh, it clearly uh, prohibits and criminalizes uh, complicity in genocide, and that's basically what we're seeing here. Just focusing on the genocide question, um, the, the, the reason they refuse to even use the word, as you said clearly, is because then they have to take further steps. So how does cases like this get brought up at the International Court of Justice? Is there a process? Is, is there someone who has to ask the questions? How does it work? Well, we've tried consistently since since the beginning of the crisis in uh, January of 2009 uh, to get India to uh, raise this issue at the International Court of Justice for us. Uh, but now even, uh, uh, as you know, under the uh, Gandhi government, uh, uh, they wouldn't do it because mm. they were uh, complicit in the uh, uh, Gossel genocide against the uh, uh, Tamils. Uh, and now under uh, Prime Minister Modi, uh, BG, BJP, uh, so far he hasn't done it. What can I say? I, I think it's going to take um, uh, the uh, uh, leadership there in Tamil Nadu uh, 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 under uh, Prime Minister Jaya Lalitha to pressure uh, Modi to uh, to do something here. What can I say? Uh, um, you know, I, I live over in the United States. Of course. <laughs> I, I've been to Chennai, and uh, I was there after the uh, massacre. They had me there in um, June of uh, uh, 2009, uh, a month, less than a month after the massacre. It was a national trauma over there, and then I spoke, and then you know, I met uh, at their request. I, I had a morning meeting with the um, members of the uh, Tamil Nadu uh, Bar Association about steps that could be taken over there in India, but uh, unfortunately, I, I don't think there was much follow-up. So what can I say? So it has to be a state that brings that accusation of genocide against another a country. Would that be correct? That's correct. And uh, right now, the most likely candidate is, is India, and certainly if... Uh, the 50 million Tamils uh, living in Tamil Nadu can get uh, Prime Minister Modi to do this. Uh, I'll be happy to file the charges myself. But, um, <laughs> drop the papers, file the charges. But uh, we, we really need uh, Prime Minister Modi. And un unfortunately, um, the latest reports are he seems to be uh, supporting this uh, so-called process uh, approved by the uh, uh, human Rights uh, Council.
So I just wondered if you could draw out some points on this report. They have recommended a hybrid system, uh, internal investigation, but the external international um, interna- uh, legal or judicial judiciary process can be drawn in. And there are two different views on that. One, the report says that it can be, it can request uh, international uh, intervention, but the local government in Sri Lanka and its supporters are very vehement in the point that we will de- determine who and when we invite into this process. What is your feel for that? Well, if, if you read the resolution itself, what was actually approved was a purely uh, domestic uh, mechanism. Yes. And as a matter of fact, uh, yesterday in its press release, the State Department said uh, that this was a domestic mechanism. Mm. Uh, that's like uh, uh, asking uh, Hitler and the Nazis to um, prosecute their own people for what they did to the Jews. Of mm. course, it's not going to happen. So we're dealing now with a, uh, a domestic mechanism. Uh, history has taught that where you have uh, genocide, uh, you, you must have an international mechanism. The Nazi genocide uh, against the Jews, uh, the uh, Yugoslav genocide against uh, the Bosnians. I was Bosnia's lawyer for that at, at the World Court, argued their case for genocide and won uh, two orders of provisional measures of protection on their behalf uh, against Yugoslavia to cease and desist from committing all acts of genocide. And there was also the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia uh, to prosecute uh, genocide, war crimes, and crimes against humanity. And then the third case we have, of course, is uh, uh, Rwanda, uh, and that, too, was genocide, and that called for the uh, International Criminal Tribunal for uh, Rwanda. So the three uh, known instances of uh, genocide, certainly since uh, the Second World War, have all required uh, international uh, mechanisms. But uh, what we have here uh, is nothing more than a uh, domestic mechanism, even as uh, bragged about by the State Department that sponsored this resolution, that put this resolution in. It's a domestic mechanism uh, with a fig leaf of some degree of uh, international uh, participation as determined by the uh, government of Sri Lanka. So it's going to be nothing more than uh, a cover-up and damage control, damage uh, limitation. And uh, second, it simply is not going to work. One of my biggest concerns in, in the report especially is that NGOs like Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch have actually accepted this report as a step in the right direction. That's of great concern to me. I wonder what you, what do you think of that, that sort of support from credible organizations, international organizations? Well, as I said, the, the report itself isn't that bad. Uh, the problem is the resolution, yes. uh, which uh, really, uh, to some extent, undercuts the uh, uh, and denies the uh, significance of the report. And I was uh, on the board of directors of uh, 
Amnesty International USA for uh, four years and dealt with uh, amnesty at, at the highest levels. Um, and they're basically uh, in the pocket of the uh, uh, United States, Britain, uh, Israel. Um, and they told the party line of these uh, uh, major uh, Western powers. So since we've seen uh, now the United States and Britain uh, both come out in favor of this uh, resolution, this domestic uh, mechanism, uh, it doesn't surprise me at all that the uh, NGOs have simply uh, towed their, uh, their party line. It's regretful, but that's pretty much the way these uh, NGOs work. Okay. So what I, I just wondered if you could tell us, a little bit about the political side of things, where you've got China, Russia, Cuba, and of course the USA um, supporting the report and even the resolution. And that's a big concern to me. I know the political, political lineup is massive against the Tamils of Sri Lanka. What do they do? What do they have to do to, to get this untangled? Well, you know, we're going to need to uh, put together a uh, comprehensive program here uh, to uh, uh, first uh, get the uh, government in Tamil Nadu uh, uh, working actively on our, our behalf uh, internationally. That's where our real power is. And then second, uh, to get the uh, Tamil diaspora around the world, e everyone united together here on, on a common front, a common program. Uh, we're, that That's the task that is facing us now, because as you correctly point out, uh, uh, we, we have the United States, uh, China, um, certainly uh, two major powers uh, working in cahoots with the uh, uh, Sinhala uh, government. You note that when um, uh, uh, Secretary of State Kerry was chair of the uh, Senate Foreign Relations Committee, he put out a, a completely uh, horrendous report which I commented on in my book, uh, The Tamil Genocide by Sri Lanka, saying that for uh, strategic reasons, uh, we are really going to have to uh, align ourselves with the uh, government of Sri Lanka. And that's exactly uh, uh, what they, uh, they have done. So we, we have a tough job uh, ahead of us. The uh, 50 million Tamils in uh, Tamil Nadu, they'll have to get organized and then uh, all the uh, uh, Tamils in the um, diaspora. And, and you have to understand the the human rights uh, atrocity here was, was enormous. Uh, I accept the figure by the bishop there in uh, uh, Jaffna. It's about 146,000 people. Um, and, and when you have an atrocity that high in, in such a short period of time, it's going to take time and organization and resources to uh bring justice to bear on these uh, uh, Sinhala leaders, because it's now clear that um, the United Nations uh, itself is, is not going to do it. So it, it's really up to us to do it. Hmm. Recently, I read a news uh, item that said that hundreds of thousands of Tamils were on the street protesting against um, the U.S. resolution, and a few thousand were arrested in Tamil Nadu. But the problem is the, the relationship between the central and the state government because the central completely controls um, the foreign affairs department, as I guess, in, as in most countries. But the question I want to put to you is, 
Can... Well, of course, let me let me interject there, though. It, it, we're we're in a better situation now under uh, Mr. Uh, Modi uh, than we were under uh, Gandhi. Yes, that's sure. <laughs> and and remember, um, Mr. Modi, Prime, I'm sorry, Prime Minister Modi says he's uh, uh, a devout Hindu. Well, what what did the uh, Sinhala Buddhists do here? But uh, wipe out. 146,000 uh, uh, Tamils from uh, January through May. I don't have the uh, precise breakdown of how many of them were uh, Hindu and how many of them were uh, Christian, but I suspect the vast majority of them were Hindus. Yes. So where is uh, Prime Minister uh, uh, Modi here? Excellent uh, question. Uh, I think we we need to bring this out that that. Uh, Tamil Hindus were were exterminated, and we expect uh, uh, Prime Minister Modi to 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 do something on our behalf. Um, so I think we are in a, a better situation here under Prime Minister Modi, and we we have to produce a change there in, in New Delhi. Mm. Can a provisional government bring accusations of genocide against a state? Unfortunately, we don't really have a, uh, a provisional government at uh, uh, this time. As, as you know, the uh, LTTE uh, had set up a, uh, a de facto state with a de facto government in uh, 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 Tamil Elam, but it was completely destroyed in uh, uh, May uh, 2009. So we're we're dealing now with trying to reorganize uh, uh, something. I I give you know advice, counsel, assistance to Tamil organizations that uh, you know ask for my help. I I try not to you know exclude one group or another or this that or the other. But it, we have an enormous task uh, ahead of us. What can I say? Hmm. To, to be honest and fair with you. Last question. The, the question of the LTT is constantly brought up by many of the forces around this issue. For me, it seems like you blame the victims and their actions who are defending themselves in whichever way possible against the perpetrators. And yet, th- there's a constant attempt to balance the LTT activities against the Sinhala right-wing government or genocidal government. I'm just wondering if you could tell me what you think about that sort of presentation of argument. Well, look, the LTTE is dead. It's eliminated. Mm. It's history. So I think that rather than uh, uh, argue here uh, about the past, we need to focus on the future. Um, that that uh, would be the best advice uh, I would give to uh, Tamil organizations. Let, let's... Let's not argue about the uh, LTTE. Uh, I guess people can have different opinions, but with all due respect, that doesn't get us anywhere. We, we have to focus on the future now. Thank you so much for giving us your precious time, Professor Ball. That has been very enlightening and helpful. And hopefully well, we can talk me, again. Let me give one other piece of advice, please. Yes, I, please. I've worked on the uh, Tamil issue now since... Uh, 1996, and I, I've met many Tamils uh, uh, all over the world. And of course, uh, uh, as you know, Tamils are uh, 
highly uh, edu- educated, uh, highly professional, wherever you go. Um, but but the issue is this: that it seems to me most Tamils are, you know, they're uh, uh, doctors, engineers, professors. We need more young Tamils to become lawyers. That's what we need. And we need uh, Tamil uh, parents to say to their children, uh, we, even though the law might not be as high a prestige uh, profession as uh, a doctor or an engineer or a scientist, for the good of the Tamil people, we need young Tamils now uh, to go to law school and get trained in international law and human rights and things of that nature and, and come out and, and start to work for the benefit of the Tamil people. So we're going to need Tamil parents to, to tell their children, go to law school and, and help our people, please. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Boyle.